All right. Okay, as our coffee drinkers are, 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 are filing our way back in here, uh, uh, I'm fired up for the panel today. Uh, it's my pleasure to introduce our next session. As you know, adversaries today are increasingly developing long-range weapons uh, that our ground-based missile warning uh, are unable to track quickly enough to cue defenses. And they're also fielding a, a variety of anti-satellite or ASAT weapons meant to degrade or destroy our existing missile warning sensors and satellites. And so this panel will discuss the operational concepts and associated technologies required to address some of these threats. And so uh, today I'm, I'm very pleased to introduce uh, someone we've already heard from out there a little bit, but our Chief Operating Officer of the United States Space Forces, Lieutenant General Deanna Burt. <laughs> The President of Space and Airborne Systems at L3 Harris, Ed Zoyce. And last but not least, our Senior Fellow for Space Power Studies at the Mitchell Institute, Tim Ryan. Good to see you, Tim. You know, before I start the panel, I thought we'd do, I'd do a little warfighting uh, story about, because uh, uh, Salty mentioned uh, that the Space Force Guardians are some of the best and brightest our nation has. And so uh, I was the, the CFAC at the time, the Coalition Forces Air Component Commander, engaged in the defeat ISIS mission, Afghanistan mission, uh, and and I also had a space role as a, as a space control authority. I, I commanded some of the terrestrial-based uh, uh, offensive, defensive, space control forces. So I asked our director of space forces every week I wanted to hear a space topic. Uh, so that even because we're always focused on ISIS and stuff like that, I wanted to hear something for, from the space community to just broaden us, to make us think jointly and think into the space domain. And so our Durspace 4 uh, had an excellent briefing team come up there, and it was a young lieutenant. It, now it's a, a guardian. Brief, uh, an excellent job uh, up there on a, on a space topic. And at the end of the briefing, I go, Lieutenant, that was, a, that was an excellent briefing. Can you help clarify something for me? Because I, I don't really understand it, this one part of it. And she looks at me and she says, Sir, we've dumbed this down as much as we could. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So needless to say, well, Salty's in there too. So everyone falls out of their chair, you know, and it revealed the limits of my Alabama, Alabama public schooling. Um, but as a, as a courtesy, for those that aren't very smart, they gave me the thing that says, Asset Space, space Forces will dumb it down for you, sir. And uh, so anyway, it's great to be up here with uh, the with, uh, well, with Guardian and, uh, and many of the folks at industry that are, are passionate about this domain. So uh, with that, Spice, let me uh, begin with you. The current missile warning architecture was initially designed to deal with ICBMs. And considering the 53-year run of uh, DSP, Defense Support Program, it's, just, it's mission just sunset. And so now we must consider everything from hypersonic weapons, cruise missiles, uh, and, and the continued threat posed by ICBMs. And obviously we have to think about balloons now too. Uh, but in your view, how have these evolving threats complicated our ability to meet future requirements? No, that's a great question, Gus. As we talked about, I think the enemy says 2007, the Chinese did their first ASAT test. And so, again, when we talk about our missile warning, missile tracking capabilities, it's how is our ability to take one of those anti-satellite capabilities and track it from launch to what is its potential target? And then to getting to General Miller's point of protect and defend, what am I going to do to make myself a hard target or try to evade uh, that missile in endgame? Uh, so those are the criticalities. They saw that with the Chinese in 2007, even more scary to me is the 20, July 2020 launch, 21 launch of their first fractional orbital launch vehicle, which starts out as an ICBM and then maneuvered in endgame as a hyperglide vehicle. 
uh, which what that means to me and what should matter to all of you is that it can now maneuver around certain detection capabilities. So I think General Miller also pointed out very clearly that where sensors are now really start to matter. And they matter on the ground, and they matter in the domain to be able to get after this. So the Secretary of the Air Force recognizes this. We've been working hard. Uh, if you have not heard of the Secretary's seven operational imperatives, uh, I think it is very telling that his operational imperative number one uh, is building resilient, uh, capable uh, space capabilities and resilient space capabilities. And so under that operational imperative, we've been working, and you saw the Tranche Zero launch on Sunday, the beginning of what is missile warning missile track. And how do we get to, as General Saltzman mentioned, disaggregated or that uh, deny that first mover advantage by having a resilient architecture and proliferated LEO, MEO, and GEO uh, to get after that missile warning, missile track capability, which is directly related uh, to that discussion of the Chinese capability. Uh, so it's important as we continue to keep modernizing our capabilities. I thought it was very interesting. Uh, some of the discussions, you know, General Miller was, was harping me as his former instructor, but telling me, you know, as a service and a COCOM, there's always a natural tension. I have uh, been, had the opportunity now as the COO to sit into ops tanks uh, regularly uh, and then leading into ops depths, leading into tanks with the CSO. Uh, and it's always interesting to see the natural tension, as there should be, between services who are force providers and worried about risk to force and how I modernize to meet the threat that we're talking about, but also from the COCOM perspective, as General Miller clearly articulated, they care about fight tonight and about two years out and then their, their care is gone, right? Because that's the extent of that commander's typical tour when they're gonna fight. So there's always a natural tension between risk to force, risk to mission, and how you balance modernizing and taking capabilities down and being able to execute in support of the COCOM. So I think through the Secretary's OI, as we start to deliver missile warning and missile track, we use that space development agency example uh, as an exemplar moving forward for how we continue to build more resiliency across our entire enterprise, uh, not just the missile warning, missile track are gonna be where we need to head for the future. Great. Those are great insights. Thanks, guys. Maybe, so, General Burke, can I, yeah, can I add on to that? Yeah, please do. So, you know, I, I remember being at an industry event, you know, right after that test happened. And uh, I would say many of us were probably at very similar industry events. Clearly, it was, it was a buzz, and it changed everything. You know, as we, between industry and the government, were on this journey for resilient and responsive systems, I think at that point it absolutely crystallized that the systems we have today are necessary, but they're inadequate to really counter this new threat. This new threat really has changed the game and changed the game in so many ways. Ballistic threats, as they are, you know where the endpoint is based on you know where they launch from and, and their trajectory. This new maneuverable system is a real problem, a real concern, especially when you think about our maritime forces you know, and how these hyperglide vehicles can maneuver around our radar systems. This is a big problem. Um, it really, I think, from, a, from an industry perspective and government, again, crystallized where we need to go today. From L3 Harris's perspective, we have 40 satellites under contract right now. Half of them, fully half of them, are slated for this new architecture, this new resilient architecture with SDA. It is a, it is a national imperative that we field this architecture as quickly as we can to make sure that we can keep custody of these vehicles. You know, one vehicle launched. You know, that was a demonstration. Imagine if it was 10 or 50 or 100. And now you're trying to tack, track these very cold bodies, these dim cold bodies dropping out of orbit and tracking them and providing fire control uh, coordinates to our warfighters. That's the mission that, that 
that industry and government is on, is to provide that type of solution. So it's changed everything for us. It's changed yeah. the way we conduct R&D, the way we facilitize our organization, and the way we think about the threat. Great. Thank you. That, that's really good to hear from the industry side. So, Tim, I want to bring you into this because you are an experienced missile warning operator uh, from back in the day. And uh, so how do you see the change in this operating environment occurring? Absolutely. And, and both John Burt and Ed hit it right on the head. When I was operating, we've got some of the fellow folks that, that I operate with out in, in the crowd. It was all about ballistic missiles. DSP was not at the end of its 53-year run. A matter of fact, we were just bringing on the HEAL constellation right at, at the highly elliptical. And, and we thought that, at that point in time, was game-changing. You know, oh, my gosh, look at all this data that we're going to get now. It's completely different now. So you, you, the sensors have evolved. There's a ton of data that's being able to come through. The operators have so much better understanding of, of where they're at now, but they've got to get to the point of exactly the threats that Ed talked about, of now it's maneuvering through. Um, that is an absolute game changer. SDA's proliferation will be able to do that. We'll talk a little bit more, I'm sure, about how on the different planes you have to be able to have that to be able to track that all the way through, because if not, you're never going to get the fire control solution that, that you need uh, from, a, from a tracking side. That's great. Thanks, Tim. So, uh, Spice, back to you. Uh, we read in the news recently a Space Force will be assuming responsibility uh, from the Army for the Joint Tactical Ground uh, Stations, the JTAGs. It was great that we had a, a question before from our um, Army officer in the room. Oh. And uh, exactly. <laughs> so JTAGs are the forward deployed units that process and disseminate that missile warning that we were talking about uh, to the warfighters, and, the re and they support the regional combatant commands. So what's the significance of this transition uh, from the Army to the Space Force, and why is this a positive development? Absolutely. So I think what this brings is the whole missile warning family together. Whether it's strategic or theater, they are now in one house. And, and what that does are in one service. And what that means is, is when we start to modernize uh, and accelerate on either side, the strategic or the theater, then we can balance both sides uh, as we're bringing them up. Maybe we learn lessons in the theater side, which we do every day, of how to detect and look at things differently using the weapon system, how are those tactics, tactics and techniques shared with the strategic side, which, again, we know uh, – is the bell ringer for our nuclear systems. So how do we make sure that we're validating those tactics and can they go back and forth? But we don't slow the innovation down uh, and the work to the theater. Uh, we will take, as long as the budget is signed uh, and approved and appropriated, uh, one October of this year we take that over. We will work through the transition of the guardians or the Army personnel who would like to transfer, the billets transfer, the system and hardware transfer, uh, and then it will be a discussion of what of those operators uh, want to cross-transfer uh, into the Space Force. Uh, JTAG is important because it's directly in each of the combatant commands and integrating into the theater warning systems of the combatant commanders. So these are the folks saying duck and cover when you're downrange as the CFAC. These were the folks directly telling the yep. CFAC, hey, you have an inbound missile, not only for the passive mission to protect, the active mission to then get the missile shooters looking and the defenders looking, and then the attack operations. How do I go back and look for uh, the high-value target it is that mobile launcher uh, in the air domain working directly with the KOC uh, to make those things happen? So having that theater element involved now, uh, tooth to tail from acquisitions through all the operations, strategic and theater, will be important. Uh, we have these capabilities, uh, OCONUS in Italy, Japan, and Qatar, and Korea. 
Uh, we have one training site uh, in Colorado Springs, uh, as well as Redstone Arsenal is where the depot is for the JTAG's vehicle. So all of that will be in the service, uh, and I look forward to seeing us continue to improve uh, and build upon the capabilities already that the Army brings to the fight and that thought into the Space Force and warfighting, and then how do we pair that uh, with our strategic capabilities uh, and get better at that moving forward. Absolutely. It's, you know what? Some of the Army Space Warfighters are some of the best I've seen. So, by the way, really glad to have those with the Space Force as well. So, um, so Tim, over to you. So, the Space Force, as you mentioned before, provides uh, critical missile warning from our satellites that are in GEO and HEO both. Uh, but, like was discussed earlier, they are big, juicy targets. And so, uh, recognizing this vulnerability, uh, Space Force is obviously moving towards a more proliferated constellation in, 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 in low Earth orbit. What will this look like uh, for missile warning and tracking, especially when it comes to the defense in depth uh, aspect? Yeah, I think that it's important to be able to understand what you don't want to do is just take GEO and shrink it down to LEO. We've alluded to it with how SDA is doing their force design. It's going to be across both LEO, MEO, and GEO. General uh, Miller talked about it earlier about being able to take that calculus and, and really make it difficult for the enemy, whether it's not cost um, inducive for them to be able to take it out, it's too many to be able to, to have any effect. Now when you start to put them in Leo, Mio, and Geo, now you've got to be able to not only worry about one, but you still have capability rather than taking out Leo if you start to destroy that orbit, which is a concern. That's a, that's a, a, a tightrope that the Space Force and, and Space Command has to walk every day of being able to say, we want to be able to defend this domain, but understanding that you can't destroy the domain because then you destroy for for everyone. And so now being able to have that defense in depth, that's going to be able to give you better capability, but also from a defense perspective. The only thing I want to add, Gus, if I may, yeah, it, Tim is right on, but I hope intellectually we're having a conversation about what do ASATs now mean when our pacing threat, pacing challenge, is putting just as much on orbit and, and, and pushing past us in some cases, bringing on capability. Is it in their interest to debris up LEO? Or are they, are they going to fratricide themselves and take away the capability that we've already said they need to fight the home game to keep the away team away and to tip and cue their assets? So this is starting to create a balance. Like they are now just as dependent uh, in cases as we are in their plan about how they're going to defend. So I'm not saying that I'm not trying to discount the ASAT threat, but I also want us to think through uh, what that means. And so it's not just the ASAT threat that defending in depth or having depth uh, with missile warning, missile track, and proliferated LEO. We also have the MEO and GEO layers. And now it's not, as General Miller said, just six juicy targets. I have a whole lot of things I have to consider. Uh, you will hear from our colleague today, uh, the amazing Dr. Turnier at lunchtime. Uh, he was quoted the other day as saying, the missile now costs more than the satellites he's launching. So is the juice worth the squeeze? What is the cost benefit to me? Is it worth me uh, economically to try to take the capabilities out that way? So what I would say, I then expect that there will be other non-kinetic things, jamming, lasing, cyber in particular, because those are cheaper to do. And if I'm going to put more on orbit, then I would expect that the enemy is going to counter in those ways to be able to cost impose cost on us uh, in a way that they can afford so we need to be shored up uh, against all those capabilities as well well so so it's nice to follow on that a little bit um you know as 
not only missile warning, but other things may move to more proliferated enterprises. Uh, does that going to change the way we do operations at all, or will it, will it drive any organizational changes with your OT&E uh, hat on? I, I think you heard uh, General Saltzman talk this morning about we're very much at the strategic level looking what is inherently governmental and what is not. And how do we divide as we look at new constellations coming? So if you talk to Dr. Turnier today, he will tell you that he is delivering the car, the keys, and the driver. So what does that mean? He's got contractor operators. So how do we come in with what is inherently governmental about what he is doing, and how do we oversight that mission set? Is that something that we would use as a model in other missions? So General Saltzman has us all evaluating in each of our mission sets. Uh, if it's inherently governmental, then we need to look at is that a blue suit or is that a government civilian? And if it's a military blue suit, is that officer enlisted in? What is that ratio uh, on the crew force? The second side is if it's not governmental, then can it be automated? Is there machine learning? Is there artificial intelligence? Is it a contractor? And then how would we purchase that? Is it a service? Uh, are we buying a wholesale commercial off-the-shelf capability? Uh, all those things. So we are in deep discussions on how we separate that. So I think in the future you will see us start to look at uh, how we separate those two, how we resource them, uh, and how we organize around them. But right now I'm a, in fight tonight. I have to teach. We have to have operators prepared, as he said, to be combat ready uh, to deliver today. Uh, so as we work through these capabilities, getting the training on new systems, getting the uh, live virtual constructive training to be have the operators ready uh, to fight with these constellations as they're delivered uh, and working closely with the contractors on the training to do that. That's great. So, Ed, uh, uh, many folks out there have uh, termed the space development agency's acquisition path as disruptive. Uh, so as an, from the industry viewpoint, uh, what have you experienced during Tranche 0 and Tranche 1, and how's this, uh, has this changed how you think of the Space Force acquisitions? Can you give us some insights? So, look, I think that, you know, it is disruptive, and I think that industry welcomes it. In fact, L3 Harris considers, you know, ourselves a trusted disruptor. So, um, you know, one of the things that he's done is he's really put – you know, an emphasis on acquiring a capability, meaning the best sensor system and capability at really a, with, the, with the time domain every two years. So when you, when you start to look at prioritizing speed and the technical capability that you're delivering, you end up with a different solution. You end up with a solution that's not architected for 18-year service life. You end up with a solution that doesn't have the government customer living in our facility each and every day, approving every test document we do, approving every time we move uh, the satellite from one station to the next. It ends up being a different model. And I think that, you know, industry is embracing that model. I know L3 Harris is embracing that model. We're embracing the investments that come with that. We're also embracing the thought that there's now an ongoing marketplace, that it is not an existential procurement where there's one procurement and industry is all gathering around that single procurement trying to figure out, you know, if you're part of it or how you win, is that there'll be ongoing procurements. They'll occur every two years. And so from, from our perspective, we're facilitizing that. We're building a new space uh, satellite integration facility. We're expanding our facilities. We're being very wise on where we choose to invest in algorithms, in processing, to make sure that um, we have the most capable system. Because as we heard the chief said, that the threats are changing, right? They're, they're changing each and every year. And so we can't be designing our systems to last for 10 years because it's irrelevant. 
because we know the threats are changing. They need to be software upgradable, and we need to be, you know, as an industry on two-year centers. And so I think what he's doing is, is absolutely required. Right. You know, we, we need to operate at the pace of the threat, and I think we're on that path today. Now, guys, if I may, I, yeah, yeah. I'm going to use that trusted disruptor. When General Saltzman's not happy with me, I'm going to use that. Sir, I'm a trusted disruptor. <laughs> I, I think Ed brings up an incredibly important point that I hope all of you hear, and that, again, it's about we have to change culturally as we, I mean, the blue suitors, that it's not going to be perfect. And we've heard all of us say to you, and I'll say it again, we cannot let perfect be the enemy of good. And how do we get to a 75% solution is good enough and get into a DevSecOps organization where we're iterating on software together and we're working shoulder-to-shoulder acquisition and operator? You heard General Saltzman talk this morning about the 15th Space Surveillance Squadron on Maui. That's in a ground-based sensing capability working with AFRL, and they're sitting side-by-side, and they're quickly able to take AFRL technology and rapidly normalize that. We see this same advantage happening with the Space Development Agency and how can we quickly iterate and work. If, if they, in fact, deliver, as promised, and Dr. Trenier will talk through this today, at every 18 months new capability, that's impressive. That's hard for the enemy to turn inside of, and they're voting every day. Now if everything is software-enabled from the ground system to the satellite to the receiver to the crypto and can all be reprogrammable and user-defined, that's a loop that is very hard to break into, um, So an OODA loop. So I think that's important that, that we all recognize perfect cannot be the enemy of good. We have to get to software-defined and user-enabled at every echelon of our business. Excellent. So the next question is something that's near and dear to my heart. It's someone who absorbed 11 uh, Iranian ballistic missiles into one of our uh, bases in the Middle East. Um, the uh, the Space Force, we've talked about the missile warning piece of it already, and you alluded to this, Bice. What Can you talk to us all about what the service is also doing in terms of providing information data to the Missile Defense Agency and the enterprise that's trying to get after some of these bigger threats? No, I absolutely agree, Gus. Overall, as I said earlier, uh, OPR, OPIR, Overhead Persistent Infrared, is the bell ringer, gets us started. Uh, depending on the launch and capability. Uh, then you have the radar capabilities that we've been modernizing uh, at Thule, Clear, Cavalier, and COD uh, over the years to be direct inject into the missile defense architecture. So that is now a machine-to-machine connection from the radar to the shooter. So as we talk about this kill chain, sensor to shooter, how are we directly impacting into MDA systems, uh, I think has continued to prove, uh, improve over the last five years. And we will continue to do so as we start to look at the Space Force will fly, the long-range discrimination radar out of Alaska on behalf of MDA. Uh, and that will get us to more mid-course updates uh, on missile flights, particularly from Indo-PACOM when we talk about North Korea, China, Russia, uh, and from the Pacific. So uh, giving them the, directly those updates machine to machine uh, is going to be critical to then get to that kill chain of, of a defensive capability, being able to shoot down those incoming missiles before they hit the homeland. So I think the more and more we integrate, and this gets to the discussion earlier that Stacy had, data's great, but if the data can't be quickly put together and processed in a way to a decision maker to execute, uh, it's, it's, it's useless. And in this case, we're working really hard to connect all of our assets into that kill chain with the Missile Defense Agency uh, in order to, to, to defend the nation. Excellent. Thank you. 
you know, uh, to, to borrow from General Diptula's uh, comments before, th this whole aspect, this defensive piece is going to need resources, uh, you know, because we're, we're, we're departing from 20 years of land-centric campaigns where U.S. forces live on bases that are basically sanctuaries to where countries are threatening us at every area of the battle space. And so missile defense, cruise missile defense, hy hypersonic defense is, is front and center in the discussion here, and, and it's good to see the Space Force actively engaged. So, so Ed, back to you. Uh, uh, there's L3 Harris has been doing some great work developing the next generation sensors needed for this, this architecture. Can you talk at all about the hypersonics and ballistic tracking sensor, how it's going to contribute to this, uh, this kind of architecture? Sure. The uh, HBTSS sensor is part of the MDA architecture and working very closely with the SDA. It will be the advanced sensor that we'll use for missile tracking. So maybe I'll step back and let, let's paint a quick picture of you know, the challenge, and, and if you were a sensor, what you'd have to do to actually, you know, track this threat. So there's a launch. Clearly, we have systems that can detect the launch. The burn is finished. Now there's a body that's gliding. It's either endoatmospheric at the high end of the atmosphere. It's gone exoatmospheric. And there's just not one, but there's a raid. There's dozens. So now the goal of this new architecture that we're putting in place is looking down at the Earth, which is an incredibly cluttered background that has high luminosity in the dark places, and picking out these objects that are moving at a hypersonic speed, and they're incredibly dim. So you're looking for very dim objects. How dim? On the order of a light bulb against the background of a million light bulbs that keeps changing. And not only do you have to track these, you have to have custody of them at all times because they're maneuverable now, you also have to be able to provide the fire control coordinates to them because oftentimes as these, these entities, these, we'll call them rods from God, drop out of orbit and decide to go to their target, they're going to maneuver around our current radar systems. And so this new space-based layer has to provide the fire control coordinates down to our warfighters. That doesn't mean that we're ingesting a picture, but we're ingesting the whole scene simultaneously. We're processing it on orbit and then we're providing fire control coordinates continuously down to the warfighter. So as these vehicles move, these hyperglide vehicles move and change, an interceptor can come up and get them. So that's the challenge. So that's what SDA and MDA are working collaboratively on, and I'm proud to say L3Harris is part of the solution. So we're very excited about it. Excellent. Thank you, Ed. So, uh Spice, back to you. I want to change it up a little bit and look at it from another perspective, and that's uh, something that's so important to anybody in uniform, and that's our training. And we know that the Space Force budget clearly prioritizes training. Uh, we heard that from uh, General Salzman before. Can you share with us uh, how you're evolving any practices uh, to ensure your guardians are thinking uh, to the future fight and giving them those tools? No, absolutely, Gus. I there is no one in here who's grown up in any service that all the other warfighting domains have test ranges. And they have training ranges, whether it's Fort Hood, it's Nellis. Uh, the Space Force needs the same. So how do we get to uh, what I am responsible for as the COO under General Saltzman's or the Space Force's LOE number one, which is delivering combat-ready forces, is that orbital test and training infrastructure, or OTTI. How do we live, deliver that infrastructure? And part of that infrastructure includes the National Space Test and Training Complex. So all of that comes together to say, how would I put guardians in a training scenario, either live, virtual, or constructive, and allow them to fight and validate their tactics against a thinking adversary? How can I do that thinking about a joint force, large force employment? 
Uh, or how do I do that in an individual weapon system? How do I train as an individual? And how would I train as a crew? Uh, and how would I train with other disparate units that we're going to have to talk uh, with each other to deconflict our actions and work and timing. So the range has to kind of entail all of that, as it does in every other domain. Uh, the keys here will be, I think uh, General Saltzman has talked very heavily about, we experience our domain virtually. We as the Space Force do not get to touch, feel, or see the threats in our domain, unless you're an astronaut on the ISS. Uh, you're, you're not in the domain physically to sense it. So we do that digitally. So virtual uh, training and it is going to be important, and wargaming, and how do we do that? General Saltzman also mentioned the Sky series, the, the space flags. We've talked about Shriver Wargame. All of those will be enabled by this or, uh, uh, operational test and training infrastructure. So right now we have a vision statement that was signed by General uh, Thompson last year. Uh, we're working now with all of our partners to include Starcom, who will eventually be the lead in executing uh, the, NELIS, or the National Space Test and Training Center. Uh, they will work with us. Uh, we're working on the strategy document and the requirements of what all is entailed. But what I would ask each of you is deliver weapon systems. Uh, we are doing some things uh, now in capabilities, just like Space Development Agency is delivering uh, this whole missile warning missile track. This is first of kind that we've flown a proliferated LEO. How are we going to do that? Do we have the trainer that's going to prepare the operators to deliver those combat-ready forces? Are they ready to take that on when Dr. Turnier turns over the keys? Now, he's saying he's going to give us the driver, too. That's great. But the operators, the military oversight, what is inherently governmental, is going to have to understand that system and have trained with those contractors uh, in order to effectively declare that system uh, initial operational capability and then force present that to the combatant command. So uh, the OTTI elements are important. You also heard General Saltzman talk about amplifying the guardian ideal or the guardian spirit. How do I teach mission command? You do that on your test ranges and your ability to let people learn to be different force leaders and force element leaders, give them the chance to make decisions. We would like to see them fail forward, learn, fail forward, keep going and learning because that's where they're going to learn and accelerate our capabilities and validate our tactics. So um, at the heart of, of LOE1 for the Space Force is really delivering on that op operational test and training infrastructure. That's great to hear. So I'd like to maybe initially to Tim, but then I would love you to hear your comments at the end. And uh, uh, this is something that's important to me also, is that the Space Force recently stood up several Space Force component commands uh, throughout our, our, uh, our combatant commands. We have the U.S. Uh, in Central Command, there's one, and U.S. Indo-Pacific uh, Command, and U.S. Forces Korea. So, uh, Tim, talk to us about how these are being integrated into the command and how that the missile warning aspect is, uh, is, is affected by this. I think that it's, you know, we, we just had um, Colonel Putnam from, from CENTCOM over and, and discussing our building uh, a couple of weeks ago and, and kind of laid out what they're doing. They are completely integrated, utilizing, you know, the way he's laid out that structure. They're integrated into the planning pieces. They're integrated into the, into the, the combatant commander's um, planning cycle as well as having a seat at the table when the combatant commander is actually designing or having a discussion or has a problem, right? I have a problem. It needs to be solved. Now you have all your components there. You know, the, the precursor to that back when you were at, at the KOC was you had a DS4 and you had a, a small staff. And But if you didn't know to go to them to solve a problem, they weren't necessarily, at least when I was in the KOC, we weren't at the table. We weren't at the table, right? 
and so that has radically changed. When you look at and utilize Indo-PACOM, we talked about JTAGs being able to, to come over. Um, Space Force uh, budget gets signed, everything goes right, it's launched over. This is something that, in my opinion, the Space Force doesn't get nearly as much credit for how well they have been able to do these transfers in. We saw it in, in the SATCOM community. Um, John Burt alluded to it 100% correct. Now all the missile warning community will be under one. Um, not only in the three and a half years did the Space Force stand up the first service since 1947, they also took on a large load of inter-service transfers. That's no easy task, right? You have to be able to, to get out to where they're at be able to explain to sailors, soldiers, marines that have come over what it means to be a guardian, all the questions that they're going to have. Um, and so that's a totally different element set as well um, that needs to be on that. But when you look at JTAGs now sitting at Indopaycom, you've got um, you know the combatant commander out there as well that can reach out and, and go right to that unit through these, uh, these combatant commanders. Yep. Thanks, Tim. No, I, I agree that. everything Tim said. I, I think this is a, the evolution of normalizing as a service and delivering, as we've talked about, as our goal with under the CSO2. Every service presents service components to combatant commanders in order to present forces, to be part of the planning, and to deal with that service's very specific mission and business and talk to those threats in each of the COCOMs. We intentionally rolled out Indopaycom, USFK, and CENTCOM first because of A, the sizes of their Durspace Force staffs because that became the nucleus that we then built upon uh, to build that service component. Um, as I mentioned in the earlier discussion about State Department, you now have a permanent Space Force presence in each of the combatant commands to do security assistance and security cooperation and talk space with our other coalition and allied partners and start to build more of that by being at the table in all of those meetings uh, with the combatant commands in each of the theaters. UCOM is on the horizon. We're working hard uh, with them to be the next up to sign. I can tell you that uh, General Miller mentioned it earlier, the very tight relationship between space, cyber, and SOF. Uh, so both Cybercom and SOCOM are very quickly behind and interested as well. Uh, so we're working through the mission analysis of what those look like. Uh, but I would say the key concern we have is how much growth can we do because I can't grow to the point that I can't execute. And so I want to make sure that we have the right resources. We're giving them the right personnel. We have all the right uh, players in the right places to do the mission. So as Ed mentioned, or I'm sorry, Tim mentioned, we basically changed the engine out in the car while we're driving down the road. <laughs> and we built a new car. But we had to keep driving, and so we had to keep delivering space capabilities because the entire joint force and our way of life depends upon it. Um, we continue to do that today. I think the add, adding these components is now taking us to the next level to deepen that relationship with each of the combatant commands personally and get after their specific problems or challenges uh, in each of their AORs. You know, thanks, Vice D. What, what strikes me is that, that with this componency, you know, for the Space Force operators that are out there that, that, that are involved in those Space Force components, that is your ultimate learning area for jointness. Yes, sir. Because uh, you're integrating with the Army and the Navy and the Marines, and you're there as an equal person at the table, and you're learning about them so that those, those Space Force operators that are there in those, in those space components can later be joint force leaders. Is that something that I think we're going to see hopefully much sooner? 
sooner than my lifetime, but sooner than later. Uh, okay, let's do some Q&A now. The, the process is as before. If we could uh, raise your hand, we'll get the mic to you. Please identify who you are as we, as we go around. All right. Jackie Schmall with Raytheon Technologies. Thanks, so thank you for the panel. Um, this question is for General Burt, and it's a little related to last panel, but also this one. Um, you mentioned using allied partners and you know our, our international partners um, to really manage the threat environment. How do we kind of move forward and maybe more of an FMS um, opportunity? Uh, right now, there are allies asking us for capabilities, and it's hard to understand the go-to-market with some of those countries. No, absolutely. That's a great question, Jackie. Um, we have been working very closely and always have been uh, with a variety of commercial par or coalition partners and where they are uh, in their journey, as General Miller mentioned, whether they've stood up uh, a command that's combined air and space or if they've stood up their own space command equivalent to U.S. Space Command uh, within their nations and, and what they are wanting to pursue. So, again, it has to be a, a two-way street. I with you, and I think FMS – uh, is an important part of uh, security cooperation and engagement. And then, again, I think the service components that we've stood up, particularly in Indo-PACOM uh, and soon-to-be, hopefully, UCOM, will help us uh, with our partners to start working those processes and capabilities. We have engaged with SAF-IA. General Saltzman has given really direct information to Ms. Siebold and her, te her team on what the priorities are. We're trying to match that up with the strategy that U.S. Space Command in general is looking at so that those are nested. Uh, but those dialogues are ongoing. Uh, the nations are absolutely on board and interested of where they can help and what capabilities they already have. So I, I want you to think when we say partner to win, it's not just about me or the United States selling things to other nations. It's also is there something we could purchase from them. So think the wedge tail on the air side. That, that's very similar concept. Great capability that we needed, and yes. so we purchased. So it, it's a two-way partnership here in the space domain. What can we provide to them uh, in sales, what would they give back to us? And then how do we every day fight tonight, keep, continue to share data and break down the barriers to actually share the space picture, connect our centers together? So today the CSPOC, the Combined Space Operations Center at Vandenberg, talks to the United Kingdom Space Operations Center, the Australian Space Operations Center, and the Canadian Operation, Space Operations Center. So we're already talking and sharing at the, at the level, and we're working now with the NATO Space Operations Center as we work uh, in support of UCOM and Ukraine. Uh, so uh, all of those things, the dialogues, the data sharing, the space domain awareness agreements, the space situational awareness sharing agreements, all are happening. Now it's how do we take to the next step of actually uh, selling and exchanging hardware between the nations or software capabilities. And I think we're on the cusp of that, but I don't want to get ahead of SAF-IA uh, and where we are. But no, we're trying to nest with the strategy of engagement with U.S. Space Command as well. Hi, uh, Colonel, Colonel Pete Atkinson, Headquarters, Department of the Army. A quick question. You mentioned presentation of forces. Uh, we talked about the regional combat commands. What's the division of labor between Space Force and Space Command with presentation of forces, what that looks like, and then what are the different roles and responsibilities? Never before have we had a COCOM in, in a service so aligned. Uh, what does that look like when you present to, say, Indo-PACOM or some of the other combat commands? No, that's a great question, Pete. Um, 
One of the things that um, I'm learning very quickly in the building is the whole gift map process, which is the joint staff process about how we allocate and assign forces to each of the joint forces or the COCOMs. And so, you know, Gus has lived this as the three for the Air Force. Uh, when you sit in op steps and that, that whole tension, as I said earlier, about risk to mission and risk to force, uh, very different struggles. Risk to force is I'm trying to modernize. I'm trying to keep moving things forward. Risk to mission is more where the COCOM is. Uh, in this case, now that we've stood up the Space Force, we have a responsibility to modernize, uh, organize, training, equip, and build that. It's not that the Air Force didn't have that previously, but now as you've stood up a singular service, how are we going to look at those capabilities and modernize them? And wholly, in a benign environment, we presented everything to U.S. Space Command. And I think we're starting to realize uh, now as we do that, we're not giving ourselves any room to do advanced training, to do maintenance, uh, a lot of things that are now hamstringing us to modernize and that get lower that risk to force. So that's going to be important moving forward of how we work through the directed readiness tables, the force presentation, what's assigned and not assigned to U.S. Space Command. Now you add, as you mentioned, Pete, the service components. What are going to be assigned to Indopaycom as the service component, for example? What are we going to say that we are force presenting to them and in what readiness table and at what uh, rate are they going to have certain capabilities uh, that are deployed in their in their AOR. So those are all things we're working through right now. As you know, that's a cyclical process uh, that goes annually. So sometimes I'm, I'm jumping on the merry-go-round with products that were built last year, but we're trying to, to force the conversation uh, and work through it. Our U.S. Space Command partners, as General Saltzman said earlier, that is our key combatant command to focus on because largely that's where most of our capabilities today are presented. Uh, as we move forward, we'll see if that changes and, and how that evolves. Uh, but we also have to be, as we stand up the service components, beholden to how we're going to present uh, to each of the COCOMs as well in that process. Thank you. Uh, Elliot Killick, Slingshot Aerospace. Um, you mentioned the role of the NSTTC and, and the role that that plays, not necessarily missile warning, but, but in, in terms of thinking through uh, how we, we, go, we go to fight. How important is the role of the NSTTC in, in making sure that we're ready to, to be resilient and fight by 2026? And do you think that the progress that's been made on the NSTTC complex so far is, is sufficient to, to, to get to where we need to be from, a, from your perspective? Thank you. That's a great question. Um, and I'd, I'd give Gus if he has any thoughts on this too because he's seen this from the air side as well. Uh, as we grew up as Air Force officers, I mean, I spent 20 years of my career in the Air Force. Uh, I grew up on the Nellis Range uh, and had the privilege to be stationed there multiple times, both as a student and instructor, and then back as the Warfare Center Vice Commander. So I've seen the capabilities that we have historically brought to bear as Air Force Space Command in order to replicate the threats uh, to the space domain to the rest of the Joint Force. So think GPS jamming, SATCOM jamming. Uh, all of those kinds of capabilities we have brought to the Nellis Range and have lived there for a very long time in large force employment exercises uh, to show these guys what it would be like to be in that contested environment. Well, now we also have to honor that there's a threat that's extended into our domain. And how are we going to train operators? One, uh, we talked earlier about, uh, I think Stacy also mentioned the inherent right of self-defense and how does she as a commercial company start to look at her own self-defense. How do we do that too? How do we teach operators how to make themselves a hard target. And what's unique about their platform, and I can say this now, sometimes I used to say this word and youngsters looked at me like, what is she talking about? 
We're going to have to MacGyver them in some way. <laughs> it came back as a Friday show, and so then it worked for me. <laughs> but we have to MacGyver and wring every taxpayer dollar out of the capabilities and think about fighting differently. I mean, there are capabilities. This is no different than any other domain, that there are capabilities flying long past their design lives and, and doing missions. I mean, look at the B-52. Doing missions, uh, we never thought that that was – it was never built for that, and, and it's doing CAS. So, I mean, there's things that can be done depending on the environment, what is the threat that's posed to you, and what can you do with your system. So that's, number one, what we have to teach our operators how to do on the training complex. And I think that's the part we have to build to. How much of that can we do live, Sky? And that gets to Pete's question of how much is force presented to the combatant command, and is there any capability that I would retain on orbit um, that would allow us to do that tactics, techniques, uh, development, and validation uh, in my, with our own assets, our blue assets, to do that. But also, do I have the test resources that are threat replicating or the threat replication on orbit? So we've had aggressors that do the terrestrial to space. How do I get on orbit uh, threat replication? And what do those look like? We need to do a lot of work there. How much live sky will we get to do versus how much will have to be virtual and constructive? Uh, we've talked a lot in the past about the things that we do on orbit uh, are very sensitive and could be perishable. So, again, we don't always want to show that. That's no different than the F-35. Pick another high-end system. There are certain things we don't do live uh, until it's time to kick the door in. So the same thing holds here. But we do need to build the infrastructure so when we do need to do live, uh, we are able to do it. The virtual and constructive, as I mentioned, you guys are delivering. We just got to deliver it faster as we give the first instantiation of the system to be able to train uh, the operators. Lastly, I would say, you know, a lot of times we get very focused on space operators. It's not just about space operators flying the satellite. It's also the intel support to that weapon system and how we're talking about the threat and the cyber threats. Do we have our cyber operators defending the infrastructure on that uh, operational test and training infrastructure? Is there a mechanism for them to also practice their capabilities with their defensive tools? All those things have to play because we come as a combat squadron and a combat delta in our force presentation uh, to the combatant command. So all of that has to get to get imp implemented in the, the National Space Test and Training Center. So to ultimately, to your point, bottom line, are we there? I would say we're about halfway, but we have a whole lot of work to do uh, that we're going to need everyone in this room's help uh, getting after uh, the live piece of this, the on-orbit threat piece of this, how we would best uh, put together an infrastructure that would allow us to fully play from tooth to tail uh, a fight if it were to extend into space. All right, thank you. Well, we are at the, we could keep going up here, but we're at the end of our time, and I just want to thank uh, all of our panelists here for their insights, certainly from our operators, from our uh, from our industry side, and, uh, and and Spice, just to you, it's really good having a Space Force warfighter in those ops depths with your voice and your perspective to argue a lot, a lot of times with the Air Force on some really critical issues. Having your voice and your service there at that table, I think, is going to help change our nation for the better. So, ladies and gentlemen, round of applause for our panelists here. Thank you.